0: Now that David has been forced to come face to face with his sin, he is quickly distracted by Joab's war, perhaps lulling him into a false sense of security. This is the 25th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the 2nd book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Second Samuel and chapter 12. 2 Samuel and chapter 12, now beginning in verse 26 to the end of the chapter, verse 31. 26 through 31, Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And Joab fought against Rabbah of the children of Ammon, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David, and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and have taken the city of waters. Now therefore, gather the rest of the people together, and encamp against the city, and take it, lest I take the city, and it be called after my name. And David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took their king's crown from off his head, and the weight whereof was a talent of gold with the precious stones, and it was set on David's head. And he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought forth the people that were therein and put them under saws and under harrows of iron and under axes of iron and made them pass through the brick kiln. And thus did he unto all the cities of the children of Ammon So David and all the people returned unto Jerusalem. Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians and chapter 5, beginning in verse 4 through verse 6. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore... Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof, fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day with all of its warnings, admonitions, and comforts. Now that David is finally exposed by the mercy of God through the prophet Nathan, perhaps David believed that things can now go back to normal. A couple of things have to be pointed out here. Number one, firstly, David's exposure to his evil actions was indeed a mercy. He was warned. When he became king, he knew that he had to write out all of the law and that law said very specifically what he could do and what he could not do. And when he violated the law, God brought the hammer upon him. And that hammer, that chastisement, was nothing less than the sheer mercy, pity, and love of God. And this is why the scriptures are full of exhortations and warnings. Because all of the warnings of God are mercies. They are the mercy of God. So when the scriptures are expounded, If they are not bringing out the many admonitions and warnings that are most needful for our protection, for our admonition, then that exposition, if it is void of those warnings and admonitions, then that exposition is dangerously truncated. And while the scriptures are full of the mercy, love, and grace of God, they are more pregnant With the warnings and the judgments and the curses that fallen man needs to hear. Beloved, we need to hear these things. Now there's a pattern that the scriptures give us. The pattern of how the scripture is to be expounded is found in Deuteronomy and chapter 28. In Deuteronomy and chapter 28, God structures his covenant relationship with his people on a one-third, two-third basis. The first one-third of Deuteronomy chapter 28 speaks of God's mercy and blessings for obedience. Whereas the second two-thirds speaks of the judgments and warnings for disobedience. And yet both sections, both the blessings and the cursings, both are mercies of God. He is telling us, this is what I want from you, and this is what I don't want from you. Both of these sections are a mercy of God. They're showing forth how God loves us, God's love toward His people as well as to the entire human race. Because rebuke is a form of God's love. The apostle to the Hebrews tells us as much. Notice what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 6 and following. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is He whom the Father chasteneth not. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Notice verse 11 and following. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. In other words, God is saying here that we are to be exercised by the warnings. Those warnings can't just go over our head as if we never heard them, but there are so many times when in the course of our life we hear a warning and we go on our merry way and we forget the warning and then we fall into that same predicament that the warnings warned us against. It's as if the scripture was saying, as the apostle says, we look in a mirror, we see our face, we see our image, and then when we turn away we forget what we look like. This can never be. So notice, he says, it's got to be exercised. We have to go over the warnings and remember what God is telling us. Notice verse 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. In other words, don't be discouraged by the warnings. Don't be discouraged when God warns you. Fathers, you know. You tell your son, you tell your daughter, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other thing. Or at least you should be telling them those things which are harmful to them. You don't let them run out in front of the street and get hit by a car. You make sure that when they're riding their bicycles they have their helmets on. Because you're warning them. You're caring for them. So you don't want to discourage them. You're telling them, I'm telling you this for a reason. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it be rather healed. And we are healed through the warnings. Now, although the rebuke against David was harsh, and it was harsh, and the consequences extremely dire, it was a show of divine mercy and an unconditional love toward the shepherd king. Verse twenty-six to thirty-one seem to indicate that Israel under David was still a formidable force to be reckoned with on the battlefield. Notice they go to Rabbah, and they're being victorious, and that was true. Israel still was a formidable force, at least at least for the time being. Because at this point, everything seemed to be going smoothly in the realm of the world and and David's dominion conquest since God had taken David and Bathsheba's child and had blessed him with another child, young Solomon. It seemed all was well. Now, while all might have been well on the battlefield, within the realm of David's own house, things were not so well forgetting the prophecy that was leveled against David as the result of his sin, or perhaps David was minimizing the intensity of the curse. You know, we hear that God is going to do this, that, and the other thing. Maybe it's not going to be that bad. David seemed to fall back into the mindset of business as usual. And this was a logical conclusion, since only by the favorable providences of God could Israel continue in the victorious battles over their enemies. And yet there was betrayal afoot. Not only within David's own house, but it seems as if even by David's own war chief Joab, Joab seemed at this point to be positioning himself. It seems from his own language that he wanted to be the victorious dominion conqueror. So even now we find there are rumblings. All was not well in Jerusalem. Note how God is setting up the situation, the indictment against David as a just consequence was to be a comprehensive curse as a result of his adultery with another man's wife, the murder of that man, and the cover-up afterward. And yet, up until this point, there seemed to be peace in the house of David and strength of his army. Now, perhaps looking back in reflection upon his father's life, Solomon recognized a fundamental principle. And we stated this last time. In Ecclesiastes 8:11 the king says this because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil God had not at this point exacted the fullness of David's sentence by taking the child's life the infant's life that was only the beginning David's humiliation and the death of his child was only the beginning Because Nathan had declared, by God's word, a comprehensive judgment against the entire house of David, by the prophet himself stating, this is what will happen. And David, was he concerned? I think he was concerned at the first. But my impression at this point of David is that maybe he wasn't that concerned. Maybe he wasn't that concerned about the intensity. Or perhaps he thought maybe and hoped maybe God would show him pity. And it wouldn't be so bad as, as Nathan said. Maybe Nathan was just elaborating a little too much. Maybe he was being too emphatic. You know, when we read the scriptures... And we read that God is going to cast all of the reprobate into hell and he'll torment them from ever and ever. We read that and we say, well, maybe it's not going to be that bad. It'll be bad. Oh, it's going to be bad. But we don't even know how bad it's going to be. God willing, will never know. So maybe David was minimizing the extent, the intensity of what God was about to do. Now, I say this because we don't read anywhere that David, after Nathan's curse, was praying that whatever curse God had ordained, it would be lessened or, or mitigated or, or that David would at least be given divine direction as to how to navigate it. We don't read him praying, Lord, I know this is going to be really bad. Help me to be strengthened against it. Help me to navigate it. Help me here. Help me there. pity upon me. Don't bring it so badly upon me. Now, happily, we never again see David hanging out on his rooftop. Tempting himself, as he did before. At least he learned that lesson. Because I can tell you this. If I had been warned of a devastating judgment against my entire family because of my own sin, I would be begging God daily that he would show me mercy and lessen the intensity of that curse. We don't read this of David. Up until this time, nothing had happened to indicate that God's judgment would come. Israel was victorious on the battlefield. Everything seemed to be well. Now this might have lulled David into a false sense of security. So instead of seeking mercy, instead of being watchful, instead of being vigilant, instead of looking for God's pity by humbling himself constantly in that watchfulness and in prayer in anticipation of what was coming, David concluded that all was well. And he continued as business as usual. Note again, the sentence declared: Second Samuel chapter 12, verses nine and following: "Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? that was killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and has taken his wife to be thy wife and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and has taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And you would think, once David heard out of my own house, I'm going to be very watchful over my own house, which was quite a large household. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this sun. for thou didst secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now by this judgment God impresses upon David, Israel and all of Christendom that there is nothing done by the children of men in secret that is not open and naked before the all-seeing eye of God. And that goes to your mind's thinking pattern as well. Can't hide from God, not even in your thoughts. And David is about to experience this tenfold. What is curious here is that David knew that his life was open before God and that God sees everything. In fact, he even says as much in 1 Samuel 26, verse 24. Notice what he says. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord and let him deliver me out of all The tribulation. He knew it. He said, look, I know that I stand before God. Nothing is secret. How did he forget that? What made him forget that? That temptation deceived him. And he entered into it. He forgot all that he used to say before he was king. In Proverbs 15, Solomon, obviously contemplating the affairs of his father and his whole family's dynasty, says this. In Proverbs 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, contemplating it, judging it, keeping track of it. So instead of keeping a more diligent eye on the rumblings within his own house, David continues, at least it seems that David continues, as if God's judgment was an empty threat, or that despite the curse God had maybe repented of it or lessened it to some extent. Verse 26 of 2 Samuel 12 states very clearly that it was Joab, not David, that fought against Rabbah and took the royal city of the Ammonites. And this was a glorious victory, but it was not going to be reckoned to David. So my question is, wait a minute, where was David? Didn't David learn that lesson when it was time for kings to go to battle? Shouldn't David have been out on the battlefield? Why was Job, why did he just send Joab? Go ahead, Joab, and he's not watching over his house, otherwise he would have seen the rumblings. So he keeps making, it seems, making the same mistakes. David was, was not called upon maybe by Job. Maybe Job went on his own. We don't know. We do know that David was not in the battle. It was Joab's battle. And David was not called upon to lead his army until after the city is taken. And that's very curious. Joab doesn't call upon David until he is victorious by securing the city for himself. And Joab sent messages to David and said, I have fought. I have fought. Notice I. Notice what he doesn't say. In the name of the king, I've taken the city. No, no, no. In the name of Joab, I've taken the city. I have fought against Rabbah, and taken the city of waters. This was a very important conquest. Since the royal city was called the city of waters because it was a place whereby it had a great reservoir of water, and water was a commodity that was was very, very precious. So what Joab is actually telling David is that he has been successful in cutting off the city's water supply so that it can be easily taken. In other words, he did the heavy lifting. Now, the original Hebrew could be rendered more precisely as, I have already drawn off the waters from the city. I have, in other words, prepared the city for you just to march in victoriously and say, okay, now I'm the king, I'm going to take it all for myself. But I did the heavy lifting. Adam Clark comments, he says this, this perfectly agrees with the account in Josephus, who says, having cut off their waters, this was the reason why David should come speedily, as the citadel, deprived of water, could not long hold out. And depriving the city of its much-needed water supplies guaranteed victory. So once the city was depleted of its life-giving water, Joab then calls upon David, tells David to come to the battle with reinforcements. Again, where was David to begin with? Why was he not privy to this battle at the beginning? If he was, why didn't he lead the charge? Why was he not there as the king representing the city of God? If we assume that he had no knowledge of Job's campaign, I don't believe we can assume that, but if he did, if he, if he was ignorant of that, how did he miss it? As the king in general of the army, was he not paying attention? And if he was privy, why did he just send Joab? So, I have all of these questions, as should you. Because I believe the king should have been keeping a close eye on Joab. Especially, especially since the assassination of Abner. Knowing that Joab was not to be trusted. Or, could it be, as David himself admitted, could it be that David was so vexed by Joab's instability as an unstable man, that he thought it was wiser to keep his distance and not go into battle with the man. And remember what he said. In 2 Samuel 3.39, he said, And I am this day weak, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, which is Joab, be too hard for me. They're too unstable for me. I'm not able to rein them in. But the Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. Note how Joab seems to go David. Verse 28. Now therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it. Lest, and I like to try to think about how is Joab saying this? Unless I take the city, David, and call it after my name. You see, David, if you do not bring reinforcements, then I will just take the city myself, and it shall be called the city of Joab. It won't be called the city of David. It won't be your name. You won't get the bounty. It will be mine. The conquest would be credited to Joab's authority, to Joab's military power, to Joab's cunning, rather than David the king. Now, perhaps Joab would have liked nothing more than David's lackadaisical attitude in joining in the battle, since he was all about himself and his own honor. We know that from Joab. But Joab's taunt seems to tell us something about David at this point. We might infer that David was indeed lax, perhaps to some extent, in his duty as king to lead Israel's army. But that's how David got in trouble the first place. He was where he shouldn't have been. He should have been somewhere else. When it was time for the kings to go to war, David chose to sit back and relax, shirking his duty, which led him to lusting after another man's wife. He placed himself in the wrong position, a position of temptation, not in a position of service, not being about the business of the kingdom of Christ. And as a result, it destroyed his own kingdom. And so I have to ask this. Is David now doing the same thing? Is he placing himself in a position of compromise? Because whenever we leave off our duty before God, whenever we leave off our duty of vigilance, watchfulness, And sobriety, we place ourselves in a situation of temptation. You know, and I know, I know that we all think that we are just so strong. I mean, I hear it the way people talk, Christians talk. I'm a holy person and I would never do such a thing. That's what David said. The law is a light and a lamp to my life. In thy law is the servant warned. And then all of a sudden, bing, he's out of it. You see, by leaving off our duty, we are also directly tempting God. What is needful on a constant and a consistent basis, no matter what we think of ourselves, no matter what we presume ourselves to be, we should be in a consistent position of watchfulness, diligence, steadfastness, sobriety, all in our responsibility before God. Once we become lackadaisical, we fall into all kinds of mischief. The Apostle says this, he tells this to the church in Colossae, he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, If ye then be risen, since you are risen with Christ, in other words, seek those things which are above, your duty to Christ, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. What a great admonition. What a wonderful piece of advice. Paul says this to the church at Colossae in chapter 4, verse 2. Continue in prayer. Continue, continue, continue in prayer. And watch in the same with thanksgiving. Where do we read of David's watchfulness, his prayer about what was going to come to pass? Paul says this to the church of the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, he repeats himself. He says, Watch ye, you all, in other words, that ye, in southern, it's you all. All of you, watch. Stand fast in the faith. Trust God. Quit you like men. Be men. Don't be led around by your lusts. Be men. Be strong. Notice what he's saying. Watch, stand fast, be a man, be strong. To the Thessalonians, he says, Don't sleep. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. This watchfulness, this sobriety, this vigilance, this continued diligence is something that we cannot leave off. Christ even warns in Revelation and chapter 3, beginning of verse 2. Verse 3, he says, be watchful. Notice, over and over and over, be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Notice, what is he saying? Remember how you have received the admonition. That you have heard the word of God, the warnings of the law, the thunderings from Sinai. Hold fast to those things. Don't let them go. In other words, don't leave the congregation of the assembly of the saints and forget what the warnings were and repent. Because, notice what he says, if therefore thou shalt not watch, if you will not be watchful, if you will not be diligent, if you will not be praying, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Now you have to admit, these are very, very frightening statements, because it places a yoke upon us of responsibility that we just don't like. And yet is for our admonition, for our warning, for our benefit, it is a mercy. David failed to recognize that he was still susceptible to falling into temptation. He thought that since he had weathered the storm of his sin, that he was free from temptation. But he was dead wrong. The fact is we are all constantly at risk to temptation. We all are at risk to falling into temptation. There's no such thing as a strong Christian. We lean upon the Christ. And this is why we must constantly be watchful and diligent in mortifying the sinful power of the flesh. If you have been tempted in something, It's not rocket science for me to tell you, stay away from that thing that you've been tempted with. Stay away from that thing which tempts you. I don't care what it takes. I don't care what it is. Stay away, lest you are tempting God. Because we are not as strong as we think. If it's the computer, throw the thing out. If it's the phone, throw it out. If, if, it, if, it's, if it's alcohol, throw it out. Whatever it is, if it's, if it's sexual sin, throw it out. If it's a person that tempts you to anger, a person that tempts you to lust, get it out of your life. Think about this. Are you serious with God? And I think most Christians today, you know, I'm sorry, I hate to say, I really hate to say this. This gives me no pleasure. I take no pleasure in doing this. But I think for the most part today, Christians just think they can skate. I think, well, it's Christianity. It's just another religion. It's like Buddhism. I could be holy and have a nice time. It's serious business here. We've got a righteous God, a God who judges, a God who damns. Oh, we don't like to hear that damnation stuff, so we're going to go next door to that church over there because they don't say that. Paul tells us this. Mortify. Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication. Uncleanness. You know, it's, isn't it interesting? He doesn't just say, mortify your sin. He tells you what sin is prevalent in the minds of people. Fornication. Uncleanness. Inordinate affection. Evil concupiscence. Covetousness, which is idolatry. For the, for the thing's sake, these things... If you continue, he's saying, for which thing's sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. David needed to protect himself by being about the Father's business. Paul says as much to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, notice what he's saying. Notice how he's saying it. Now, I think think when we read the scripture, we need to realize how are the apostles saying what they're saying. Therefore, my beloved brothers. My beloved brothers and sisters. I love you. Be ye steadfast. Unmovable. Always abounding in your own agenda. No, that's not what it says. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. As David should have been. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. All right, so you ask yourself this. How often are you deliberately placing yourself in a situation which tempts you? Instead of fleeing in terror from those things that tempt you as Joseph did when seduced by Potiphar's wife, do you flirt with that sin? You see, we think too much of ourselves. Well, I could, I could play with that sin. I'm strong. I don't have to worry about it. I'm good until you're not. You can stand until you can't. We are usually tempted when we omit the duties that each of us are given in the work of God, either in the raising of our families, supporting the church, or evangelizing in the marketplace by showing ourselves as faithful witnesses. So whenever we find ourselves comfortable with temptation, we are tempting God. And once we tempt God, God responds by lifting His hand of restraint from us, causing us to fall headlong into a world of hurt. I said it before, if the King of Israel can fall like this in such a way... Who are we? And this principle holds true for individuals, families, churches, and nations. Once any one of these institutions enters into temptation, God responds. God has to respond because He's righteous. The problem with America is that while it began as a Christianized nation, it was not maintained as a result of watchfulness, sobriety, and diligence in order to keep the precious heritage that God had given it originally. Once the nation forgot God, it entered into temptation of worldly pursuits. As a result, God responded in his anger. Perhaps David was thinking that he could stay back and let someone else accomplish his duty in the battle against Rabbah. That was David's problem. Like America and her churches, he had become lax in his commission as king. He no longer thought that diligence was his calling and that he had arrived. He, had been, he, had did, he did his duty. If you would go to David today and say, well, you know, you did that already. Remember the giant? Remember that giant? Remember that Goliath? I killed killed, killed him. I did that. Remember the thing with Saul? I escaped that. God, yeah, oh yeah, God helped me, but I did that. And all of a sudden, we start to get full of ourselves. Remember those things that I was tempted with in the past? I beat them until I didn't. That's the problem with presumptuousness. David thought that diligence was no longer needed because he had arrived. And that was his initial problem. That was our problem. That is our problem. We are not doing what we should be doing. Consider this as a warning for all of us. Ask yourself this as husbands Are we now shirking our duties of fidelity to love, nurture, and protect our wives? and by keeping an open communication with them? Or do we think that as the covenant head of our wives, we can simply dictate by commandment what they are to do, what they are not to do? And simply because we're married, now we're communicating because we're married. Or are we flirting with all kinds of temptations? Paul counsels the husbands of... The church at Ephesus, who may have had a misunderstanding as to how to relate to their wives in the Christian marriage, she says this in Ephesians 5, 28, and 9, So what men to love their wives as their own bodies, he that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever ha- had hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. Peter takes this idea a step further when he counsels that husbands ought to give honor to their wives, Note how he states that men are to dwell with their wives according to knowledge. He's referring to the knowledge that the scripture sets forth concerning the marriage relationship in 1 Peter 3, 7. Notice, likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, so that your prayers be not hindered. And while the covenant relationship as the head of the house is to be recognized, there is no room for harshness within the marriage union. As fathers, we have a duty. We have a responsibility. We are to take time to relate to our children. You just can't birth kids and think that you are now raising them. It takes time. It takes self-sacrifice. It means you've got to stop from what you want to do and do what's best for the child. You have to actually get to know the child. Take them out one at a time. Separately, if you have more than one child, take one child out for an outing, then the next week another child, or the next day Get to know the child. Do things with them, take time. I know sometimes we don't wanna play games with our kids because we have bigger fish to fry, but how important is that? That's important, very important. There's wives. Are you tending to your duties as a loving and supportive wife? Are you rebuking your husband when he's not taking time with the child? Are you admonishing him as you should? You're his helper. Now you can't agree with everything he says. Otherwise, that would be wrong. If it's not right, it's wrong. You are to act as his helper in the affairs of the marriage and rearing of the children. You are to govern the house in diligence and watchfulness, guiding in their education, in their character building. Or, you really don't have too much time with that stuff because, you know, That Facebook community website, it's always calling. And I could tell you this. I know some of you are not very happy when I just rag on Facebook or rag on... Too bad. Because if it is not stewarded properly, it will destroy you. It will destroy you. So please... Be a good steward of your time, especially when it comes to social media. It will destroy you. It is meant. Please take my word for it. It is meant to destroy you. It is meant to destroy the family. It was it designed to destroy your family. So beware, beware. Now, what about you kids? What are you children? Children, listen up. Are you helping by obeying mommy and daddy? Are you helping around the house? Do you have to be told every five minutes to clean the toys up or to do this thing or that? No, you should know to do this, especially as you get older. You have to be mindful to pick up your own toys. You have to play well with your brothers and sisters. You have to be groomed to do what is right in the sight of God. Grandparents, single folk, you also have responsibility to assist in the areas that you are equipped for. Churchmen, if heresies are not dealt with, and I speak of the session, if heresies are not dealt with speedily and severely, they are allowed to then to creep into the fabric of the church and will slowly destroy the witness of that church. God then will curse the church and bring it into the fullness of apostasy because the session did not love the truth but rather exchange it for a lie. But this also goes true for state, local, federal leaders. They're not exempt from this principle of watchfulness they are to be held accountable to God as it relates to their duties because it is God who raises up kings and casts down kings. Whenever a civil leader forgets that he is called to act as a minister of God for the glory of God and for the advancement of his holy law order, they will come under his curse. And it is our duty to tell them that. I make no apologies to telling a reprobate congressman or delegate or church leader that they are in trouble with God. And if they refuse to repent, to bring down the prayers of imprecatory against them. But once they fail to repent, then there's no escape. So everyone without exception is called to work for the well being of the community of Christ, be it the individual, the family, the church, or the nation. The problem is, however, that too many of us believe that there is a time in our lives when we are no longer required to serve. And that gives us this lackadaisical attitude toward the work of the kingdom. Moses worked until the day he died. We see this in the halls of government where when men and women of tenure think that they no longer have to heed the voice of God or or even the voice of their constituents in serving the people. And once that happens, once we think that we have arrived, once legislators think that they can hold their positions of power just because they have positions of power, God brings judgment. And here's what I'd like to ask you. Ask yourself this question. Very simple. What kind of person are you? Are you a taker? Or are you a giver? Do you take or do you serve? After Job's prodding, David hurries to the battlefield with reinforcements in order to take the city. And David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. The question here is, what motivated David to engage in the battle? Well, we don't know. Was it his pride? Was he waking up to his duty? Did he just want to save face? Whatever the reason, he finally goes, that's what we know, he goes to the battle that Job had said, look, if you don't come, I'm going to take it and this will be mine. Once the capture of the city is accomplished, David strips it of its glory beginning with the king. That's what we are to do. When we take dominion over an area, we are to strip it of its glory and raise up the glory of Christ. Now notice his actions. Once victory is won, notice the first thing he does. He removes the crown from the king's head, which was symbolic for a number of reasons. Firstly, it was significant because it was signifying that the king was no longer in authority. He was stripped of his power. He had lost that title by conquest, and now it was David's. David would put it on his own head, signifying, I am now the king, not the king of Rabbah. Number two, David then assesses the city's value and the weight of its symbolism, which is the crown. The crown symbolized the city's value. The weight thereof of the crown was a talent of gold with precious stones. Thirdly, the crown was then placed upon David's head. And then finally, he then brings the treasures of the city to his own people and places the Ammonites, all those whom he captured, under tribute, making them servants of the people of Israel. Notice what it says. And he brought forth the spoils of the city in great abundance, And he brought forth the people that were therein and put them on the saws and the harrows of iron and on the axes of iron and so on and so forth. He made them servants. Now while these are significant historically and militarily, they're very much symbolic of the gospel declaration. Number one, here we have David, clearly a type of Christ, besieging Rabbah of the children of Ammon, whose king, I believe, represents Adam, since the king's crown is described in a very detailed fashion. You see, when Adam was in the garden before his rebellion in the 28th chapter of Ezekiel, God describes him as being arrayed in gold and precious stones. Gold always refers to civil power, whereas precious stones refer to priestly power, especially when the stones are placed in the breastplate. In this case, the gold and the stones seem to be located on the crown as it is customary today, on the headship of the one that it's crowning. This indicates that this king of the Amorites was lord over the civil and the religious realm. He was the head. This makes perfect sense, I believe, since throughout history it was the king who ruled all realms, both civil and ecclesiastic. The king was the king of of everything, church and state. It wasn't until the 12th century During the investiture struggle, the controversy there, that the two realms were separated as they should be within the human sphere. However, when Adam was created, he held both the civil and the religious authority as the covenant head over the entire human race. When Christ, as the last Adam, victoriously defeated his enemies, he rightly was able to transfer the crown of gold and precious stones from Adam to himself in the same way that David translated and transitioned the Ammonite king's crown and precious stones to himself. Once that took place, all the reprobates were put to hard labor in the same way as David does to his captives. Now, note how David brings the spoil of the Ammonites into the city of Jerusalem. And he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. The promise of Christ's victory is that we shall inherit the earth, which is now dominated by the wicked. And yet Christ is now wearing the kingly and priestly crown and is putting down all enemies under his feet. He has already taken the crown from rebellious Adam. He is already victorious. He's already putting the wicked under his feet. The only thing left is for the army of Christ to recognize the reality of what Christ has accomplished and capitalize on it by taking dominion over the Ammonites. The problem is we have failed to mortify even the smallest of sins, thinking that the smallest of sins really don't matter. And we become takers and not givers. And you know, sometimes... We condemn some of the people today in our nation that are trying to reap monetary reparations. Saying, well, we deserve this, and we deserve that, and we deserve the other thing, and we don't want to work for this, and we don't want to work for that. We're just like that. When it comes to Christ, Jesus give me this, Jesus give me that, Jesus give me the other thing. What have you done for Christ lately? How have you sacrificed yourself for Christ lately? Well, I I train my children. The pagans train their children. Well, I do devotions. The apostates do devotions. The Pharisees did devotions. But I pray. The Pharisees prayed. And they prayed long prayers. And they prayed in public. And they prayed it around before the public. What have you done lately for the kingdom of Christ? I mean, look, these are just questions I ask myself. So if I'm asking myself these questions, you can be sure I'm going to ask you. There's one other very interesting nuance to this historical account. What does the city of Raba represent? And why is it called the city of waters? Could that be the name symbolically of Eden? Is David's capturing of Raba, the city of waters, symbolic of Christ recapturing Eden for the elect? Well, in Genesis chapter 2, God describes Eden in very careful detail. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every green, every tree, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, And, verse 10, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. Eden was a garden city watered. It was the wellspring of water. It was watering by four waters in the same way that Rabbah was the city of waters. And the connection cannot be ignored. This seems to imply that the king of that city is a type of Adam. Adam. Furthermore, when Adam rebelled, the city was cut off from the waters and then conquered by David, who restored the waters. Once Adam sinned, his spirit died as if the waters of life, which watered the garden, were cut off from him. But by bringing all the spoils from Rabbah, representing the fallen Eden, to Jerusalem, representing the kingdom of God, David reestablishes the new Eden for his people to enjoy in the same way that Christ is reestablishing Eden under his headship today and not under Adam's. And this is why Isaiah can declare that when the Lord comes, he will establish the new Eden, which is his kingdom on earth. Notice Isaiah says this very clearly. It's almost impossible to miss this. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Ezekiel picks up on this very same future reality that will come to pass when the Lord Jesus finally sets his feet upon the earth at his incarnation, which he has done. And he had brought forth such a power with that incarnation and then the sending of the Spirit to establish that new Eden. Notice what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel 36, verse 33 and following. Thus saith the Lord God, In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities and the wastes shall be builded and the desolate land shall be tilled. Remember what Adam was told he had to do, till the ground. He failed to do it. Christ had to come to do it. And that word, tilling the ground, is the word to cultivate, where we get our word culture from, where to cultivate the world. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that pass by. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that that was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it." End quote. This was a victorious, glorious conquest for David, as well as all of Israel, which must have further solidified thoughts of peace in David's mind. We're still blessed by God. Perhaps this was helping him to forget the curse that was upon him, thinking all was well. But all was not well, because David's son, Amnon, was following in his father's lustful footsteps. We read this in verse 1 of chapter 13 of Second Samuel. And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. This event ushers in the beginning of a barrage of sorrows for poor David. We shall explore this sad situation next when we continue in the exposition of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.